Good afternoon and good morning, everybody. Welcome to our Migration Policy Institute webinar on migration disasters and climate change in Eastern Africa. My name is Lawrence Huang, an Associate Policy Analyst on MPI's International Program, and I'm your moderator for this webinar. Um, to start, a quick housekeeping note. If you have technical problems, please email events at migrationpolicy.org. Um, we will have a Q&A at the end. There won't be a voice Q&A, so please type any questions into the Q&A box or email them to events at migrationpolicy.org. So today's webinar has two objectives. Um, first, we want to highlight some of the critical challenges in East Africa. As we'll hear from our speakers, this is a region experiencing immense human suffering and socioeconomic challenges related to climate mobility and disaster displacement. Over 260 million people live in the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, or EGAD, a region within East Africa covering Djibouti, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Kenya, Somalia, Sudan, South Sudan, and Uganda. The region recorded over 3 million disaster displacements in 2022, including some 2 million uh, due to drought alone. And many of us will have been following the drought in Somalia over the past couple of years, um, which has combined with conflict and floods to force people to move and to leave their homes in, in unsafe ways. Across the broader Eastern Africa, some models estimate that without strong climate and development action, there could be 10 million internal climate migrants by 2050. So we know this is a critical issue, this type of large scale displacement. It can cause huge problems for the migrants themselves, as well as their host and transit communities. Um, but if we can turn this migration into safe, planned, regular movement, it can instead help people to adapt to climate change and to make, to make empowered choices about their futures. So given this, our second objective is to explore solutions and look forwards at what can be done to help anticipate, prepare for, and respond to these challenges. And our starting point will be one specific program called Addressing Drivers and Facilitating Safe, Orderly and Regular Migration in the Context of Disasters and Climate Change in the EGAD region, which is long, so we call it Migration, Disasters and Climate Change or MDCC for short. Um, between March and August of this year, MPI and our partner Axion Monitoring and Evaluation have conducted the final external evaluation of this program, which is now available online. Um, MDCC ran for two years and was implemented by four UN agencies, the International Organization for Migration, International Labor Organization, Platform on Disaster Displacement, and the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, in partnership with EGAD and the EGAD Climate Prediction and Application Center, or IFPAC. The program helped to implement the Global Compact for Migration, which is an intergovernmental agreement on international migration adopted in 2018. Um, MDCC had four main areas of work. First was data, so it worked with ICPAC, um, the regional climate center in East Africa, to develop displacement risk profiles on cyclones and floods and to enhance ICPAC's capacities. And we'll hear from Dr. Ahmed Amduhud about this later. Um, second, um, it was on policies, and MDC conducted policy reviews to understand how mobility was a part of climate change and disaster policies in the region. In Kenya, it helped to enhance the National Climate Change Adaptation Plan. And in Turkana County, Kenya, which is where Kakuma Refugee Camp is, uh, it helped to develop climate change adaptation action plans at the sub-county level to prepare for climate change. Third, on disaster displacement. In 2020, EGAD ministers uh, endorsed the EGAD protocol on the free movement of persons. And this included an article uh, on allowing people to move across borders um, uh, because of disasters and to enter other member states within EGAD. Uh, to support this, MDCC developed standard operating procedures so that governments and local actors could be prepared to admit and support disaster displaced people. And it conducted simulation exercises to test these procedures in border regions in Kenya and Uganda and Kenya and Ethiopia. And we'll hear, I think, a bit more about this from Lucy Duxbacher. And fourth, on regular migration pathways, um, the program conducted an awareness raising campaign to promote safe migration and conducted research on refugee protection. It also uh, conducted research on green economy policies and labor market needs in order to design three local pilot projects in Somalia, Kenya, and Ethiopia which helped to boost climate resilient livelihoods and allow migrants and displaced people to contribute to the green economy. 
As part of our independent evaluation, we interviewed 55 UN and government officials, civil society actors, and migrant and host community members. And from that, we want to highlight just a few broader lessons um, that can help governments, UN actors, civil society um, to design solutions and to implement solutions on migration disasters and climate change. So it's clear that governments in the region see migration disasters and climate change as a critical issue and want to keep working on this issue. Um, it's, you know, we'll, we'll hear from, from um, Bob a bit more about um, what that looks like in Uganda. Um, this specific program, MDCC, it generally met its targets and it provides proof of concept that this type of regional multi-agency programming can make a different a difference. You know, it used its resources efficiently, collaborated well with other programs, and early signs point to significant changes for some community members who've been able to secure long-term employment or start their own businesses. But there's a set of common challenges that policymakers and, and the UN should be aware of. So often activities were delayed because of conflict and security issues, as well as COVID. Um, and other times it became clear that it was actually better to streamline the planned activities. So for instance, developing two standard operating procedures instead of three, and really ensuring that what is developed was targeted to local needs and context. Um, one challenge that stood out was in Takana County, Kenya. So the program had a pilot project uh, to support livelihood diversification and of water infrastructure in line with the recommendations from its study on the great economy. But then there was a drought and this lack of rainfall made supporting pasture reseeding and rangeland management just much harder. Lastly, a set of um, good practices that we wanted to highlight. Uh, we found it's really important to have all stakeholders involved to take this whole of government approach. So bringing together ministries of environment, migration, labor, and everyone else, and to take whole of society approaches. So bringing together civil society, private sector, social partners, and it became clear that only when there's this strong buy-in from a wide range of actors, that's when solutions take root in the long term and in local communities. Um, related, we also wanted to highlight the importance of sustainability and looking early on so that programs don't just happen and then disappear, but they're really handed over to local authorities and local partners and national partners. And we see some of this already. So in Ethiopia, local authorities are already working to replicate awareness raising activities started during this program. So let me end there and um, just encourage you all to take a look at our MPI and Axiom evaluation, which Lisa has popped in the chat. Um, there are a host of recommendations and uh, important findings that we hope can help you think of and, and to better implement solutions in the future. With that, let me turn over to our four fantastic speakers for today. So Dr. Ahmed Amdahun is the Regional Program Manager at the EGA Disaster Risk Management Program at ICPAC. Lucy Daxbaka is the Head of Mission to the Republic of Uganda at EGAD. <clears throat> Yuri Yanti is Research and Partnerships Officer in Migration, Environment and Climate Change at the IOM, International Organization for Migration. And Bob Natipu is Assistant Commissioner for Climate Change at the Ministry of Water and Environment in Uganda. Um, so let's start with Lucy. So Lucy Darksbacher, you're Head of Mission to, uh, to the Republic of Uganda at EGAD. You come at this with, I think it's 18 years of experience as a diplomat working in the region on migration, development, governance, other related issues. From EGAD's perspective, what are the challenges you're facing related to disasters, climate change and migration? And can you share how these priorities fit within EGAD's regional policy efforts to support migration management and the free movement of persons? Lucy. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for the very good briefing to introduce uh, the webinar, but also for inviting us. And I would like to present our compliments from EGAD Secretariat to the Institute, as well as to all the distinguished panelists who are here with us. My assistant commissioner, Bob, is here. It's so nice to see you, Bob. That gives us good morale. Um, I think, like I said a few minutes ago, today, if you go to EGAD website, you will see a very active and robust website that will give you a very good idea of what EGAD does. Basically, it's deepening regional integration for peace, security, and development. And uh, EGAD region, is basically 
both a region on the move and a region with severe fragility in some respects, because migration, climate change, and disasters keep the citizens and the governments of Igad region on their toes, because if it's not drought, which recently affected over 40 million uh, citizens, it may be floods, it may be mudslides, landslides, cyclones, and then we have the cyclic nature of uh, wars and conflict in a region. That basically reinforces these uh, themes that we're addressing today. In the region, we have mixed migration. Over 17 million IDPs, probably now 6 million refugees with the Sudan war going on, an unknown number of economic migrants, unknown why, because living in Djibouti, I've lived in Djibouti for over five years as a migration expert. And when I drive to Tajura from the city of Djibouti, I cross the country and on the way I see groups of children and young men and women coming from Ethiopia, crossing the Djibouti desert, trying to make their way to Obok, to cross to Yemen, to leap over to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia to look for better ways of living and look for jobs. And therefore, I can comfortably say that the number of migrants pursuing alternative livelihood sources, economic uh, survival uh, sources are unknown because nobody knows how many of these migrants really cross deserts and cross areas other than designated borders. And most of them even do not have any papers they travel with because they are supported by traffickers and smugglers. And therefore in that context, the issue of disasters, climate change and migration is at the heart of IGAD work. And when I say IGAD work, I mean member states of IGAD, the whole of Africa, as well as the Eastern African countries of Kenya, Uganda and South Sudan. And of course the others are Sudan, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Somalia and Djibouti. Now, one of the key aspects of challenge or one of the challenges we have in the region has to do with uh, the legislation and the legislation in terms of both at regional level in terms of cross-border legislation, international law, which supports us to address this as well as national law. In most cases, you'll find that even if our constitutions do give us provisions, for example, the constitution of Uganda. I think it's article 249 that calls for Uganda government to establish a disaster management commission. And this constitution was written in 1995. To date, we only have a department in the office of the prime minister handling disasters. And yet every year, the Renzori mountains, the ranges of the Renzori, Mount Elgon, which is now the subject matter and attention of IGAD, are always faced with natural disasters of flooding, mudslides and landslides and drowning whole villages. An unknown number of citizens are always lost on this, uh, in these natural disasters. So the issue of legislation being put into policy and practice is a major issue and therefore, Institutions also get limited if they are not given robust mandate. For example, as I've given you the case, if we do not have disaster management institutions focused on managing disasters, empowered by acts of parliament or any other um, manner in which legislation is enacted in member states. And therefore, I would like to think that um, that also affects the way our budgets at national level of member states is done. The budgeting processes are usually um, brought up by the votes given to institutions. Now, when you don't have defined, well-grounded, legislatively um, mandated institutions, it's difficult for treasuries to allocate adequate financing for actions on migration, on climate change, on disaster management. The other thing also is the transient, the transborder transboundary nature of this kind of uh, um, occurrences of disasters, of climate change and migration. They do not know borders. Citizens transverse countries, whether they have papers or they don't have papers, they move. 
And therefore, it's very important for member states to have uh, cross-border collaborative mechanisms and at best laws that will support them to manage citizens on the move so that they can be supported in line with national law or regional laws. That brings me to a very important uh, legislative framework of EGAD, that is the EGAD Protocol on Free Movement of Persons in EGAD Region. Now, Article 16 enjoins member states to support persons displaced by disasters across international borders. Now, this is the only legislation in the world, actually, if you examine all the frameworks we have in the world, that actually is in place regarding persons affected by disasters who are crossing international borders. And there are three dimensions to it. One, that citizens can move and change their local if they anticipate a disaster is going to happen during disasters and in the aftermath of disasters. And then at the same time, member states agree to register these citizens who have moved into their countries in accordance with national law. Now, this aspect of the protocol provision of Article 16 also calls for certain conditions. One, it means that all EGAD member states should sign the protocol, ratify the protocol, and domesticate the protocol. So now I have I've been the program manager for this uh, process towards the protocol since 2017. And I can inform you that uh, so far, the Republic of Sudan, the Republic of South Sudan, and the Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia have signed on the protocol. And we're having discussions with uh, Uganda at the moment these uh, weeks on them also studying and signing the protocol. But I would need at least a minimum of five out of eight signatures and ratifications uh, by legislative assemblies for the protocol to come into force. Therefore, national law actually has an interplay with the protocol. And therefore, it needs to be signed, ratified, domesticated into national law so that then we can comfortably execute and implement this Article 16. And then the third provision in Article 16 is the extension of stay of displaced persons in that country where they have gone for safety as long as it's not possible for them to return back to their countries of origin. So these are very generous provisions. They are very generous provisions. But again, they call for readiness, preparedness, structural systems, institutional systems in member states that they are able to host these persons who are moving in, um, in, the, in anticipation during or in the aftermath of uh, disasters. Now, I was involved recently with the, under the MPTF uh, program with my colleagues from ICPA, Omar, Mohammed, also from Djibouti, Elena, um, and we're working towards actually starting to operationalize this Article 16. But as I tell you, even if we do these preparatory measures, the most urgent is for EGAD member states to sign the protocol, ratify it and domesticate it. Because the development of SOPs is a technical matter. This is for technical persons. But the execution of these SOPs must be under a framework, and that framework is the protocol. Between Kenya and Uganda, we've identified Mount Elgon ranges as a priority area. Even now, we are discussing a new program in a guard um, um, where we hope to take forward the Mbale process on um, making sure we implement work on disasters, climate change, and migration concerning the Mount Elgon ranges. And therefore, um, I believe that with EGAD migration policy framework, which has actually uh, led to the development of the protocol and now some countries have signed, we have at the regional level a good standing. We have at the regional level a good standing. But then we need member states to own these processes. We need them to own these processes and that legislation that will support all this work that we are doing from the regional level. Uh, some of the institutions in a region are cake. Even ministries may need to update, I mean, to, to, to update their mandates or to review in view, especially of climate change. 
Climate change has, is progressively a challenge for member states, and therefore they have to respond in line with how we are facing a lot of uh, progressively getting faced with disasters, mass migration, and um, related issues. Now, I'm happy that IGAD has the specialized institute of ICPAC, IGAD Climate Prediction and Adaptation Center, which my distinguished colleague Ahmed uh, is here with us and he will, he will cover. He will cover this uh, topic on climate change much more than I would and speak to us about prediction, mitigation, preparedness, response, and adaptation. But for me, one thing I would like to emphasize would also be if we could take advantage of the issue of technology, to use technology to manage, for example, issues of climate change and disasters, on prediction, if the Met authorities can be strengthened, if the local governments, the district disaster management committees can be trained and strengthened and technology access to them so that some of the hotspots for drought, for floods, you know, especially the flood, flood floods from those mountain areas and then big lake basins like river basins, the river Nile basin, the Lake Victoria basin. I think this would be very helpful. And then also strengthening still regional frameworks to respond to some of the, the, um, the, the challenges for the region. COVID-19 has been a big challenge and we are still suffering from its impacts economically, uh, budget-wise at the national level, but also it has affected so many uh, persons during the migration process. We've done several studies in IGAD. Uh, I think to me, um, it's very important that the member states are supported at the central level, as I say, the institutions at the central level, and then also at local level that they are supported. These are some of the priorities that we have. IGAD would like to translate progressively more of our policy options, uh, the political leverage that we have, the expertise that we have, and make us even more relevant at national level of member states and at community level of member states to make sure that people can be able to be resilient against disasters, climate change, and the adverse effects of migration. Migration in itself is a positive thing, but you have to manage it, you have to govern it in a way that is protective of the migrants. And IGAD, of course, has developed a robust program on migration, on labor migrants in the region. We have uh, supported member states on their BLS, bilateral labor agreements. We have the Djibouti Declaration on Refugee Education. We have the Djibouti Declaration on Labor, Employment and Labor Migration. We have the Kampala Declaration on Jobs, Livelihoods and Self-Reliance for Refugees. So we do extensive work on migration governance. But really, I believe um, what is now important is to deepen the work on policy, legislation, but also empower member states to be able to respond in terms of institutional capacity, institutional mandates, expertise, and technology. I thank you. Thank you so much, Lucy. And it's very exciting to see all this progress on, on the free movement protocol and, and broadly in, in the region. Um, we're going to turn straight to Yuri Yanti from IOM, uh, Research and Partnerships Officer. Um, you've also spent time at different UN organizations working on climate adaptation, mitigation, finance, green transitions, um, inclusive policy development, lots of areas that sort of pull on what Lucy set up. So can we uh, first zoom in on this MDCC program and can you share from IOM's perspective, what are the most promising solutions and approaches to managing climate mobility? And then Broadly, what have you learned from this experience in terms of the importance of policy coherence, multi-stakeholder engagement, other approaches? Over to you. Hey, thank you very much, Lawrence. Thank you, Lucy, for setting the scene. So I'll, I'll look uh, more directly at what the current climate policy is. Uh, the region is very strong in understanding and reacting to the migration environment and climate change nexus, uh, front runner globally. And if we start looking at the policies and do policy analysis, there are two key concerns that we can identify. One is uh, climate change effect on livelihoods, uh, especially agriculture, pastoralism. And the second one is looking at uh, rural urban migration, 
and uh, sort of disasters that, that are happening. So I'll start with the agriculture and livelihoods. It's uh, EGOD region is 80% agricultural, 80% of the companies are small and medium enterprises. And we have a clear understanding, many of the entrepreneurs have a clear understanding of the climate change impacting their livelihoods already, but they are facing few issues. One is that they have limited information about the future projections. Uh, so they are uh, to a certain degree under preparing for how bad the impacts of climate change will be. And second one is the impact, uh, access to finance. There is very big difficulties everywhere to get to smaller ticket sizes so that frontline communities can really start implementing and having these long-term solutions that are locally led. And on these livelihoods, when we started looking closer to the small and medium enterprises, one of the big parts they were facing uh, is that the policy is incoherent uh, throughout the whole of society approach. So this has usually led into that the policy might be very good on a state level, but when we start going to local level, uh, it might not uh, connect that well, or it might be that private sector has not been part. So this way, the private sector, even though there would be incentives in place, they might not be well aware of uh, these possibilities that are there. So this sort of uh, inclusion in the policymaking sometimes leads into limited uh, uh, solutions. Uh, the other, other part that we were looking at is this rural urban migration. And there is this uh, worry or a concern of migrants moving. And when migrants move, they always need something. So let's say there, there's need to then build new shelter. Uh, there might be need to have charcoal just for cooking. And this might then create fragility in the community that they are coming to. If there is already a limited forest cover, uh, thinning it further might create this resource scarcity issues that we've been talking about. Uh, it might then uh, lead into even less rainfall. It might reduce the cover for uh, landslides or protection from landslides and so forth. So this is the sort of vicious circle that comes from non-planned migration and when there are no uh, previous plans in place and preparedness. The other option is naturally to start early preparations, uh, creating strong value change, uh, chains, building resilience inside the communities. So this way, ensuring that when people are on the move, do they then move to the close by village or are they coming to the city? that there are robust plans on how to prepare the community, hosting community, and how to also integrate the mobile populations to this. So I'm. this is not all sorted by one tool. This needs multiple actors, multiple uh, actions, but especially on the green economy, we had one study on specifically on this topic. Uh, so we, concluded that one of the big uh, solutions for private sector engagement is to strengthen the policy inclusion and the whole of society approach. So this is uh, sometimes, I was already mentioning this to have multiple levels of governance, part of developing this, but also importantly, acknowledging frontline communities as problem solvers. Uh, the people who are facing uh, the impacts of climate change are usually best prepared to address them. And they are also best positioned to articulate how does climate change impact their specific group. Uh, so there has, is a need and IOM has tried to support. Sometimes this means creation of new spaces. It might be for specific communities to be able to come together to come up with new solutions. It might be specific groups like women or youth to come together to identify how it impacts really that specific group. And this way, aggregate the voices and integrate them into different levels of policies. So uh, for this, uh, 
then looking at how to really boost the green economic transition in a way that it's not just bringing more green economy, but also strengthening the people in the most vulnerable positions. So for there, grants are a big part that can help the most vulnerable groups, but it's a very double-bladed sword because if an economy becomes grant-based, it actually slows down the economic transition. So there's this uh, very fine line that needs to be navigated when uh, having the green economic transition so that it's not just the well-off that are part of it, but everybody can be included in the value change are strong. And that also uh, there are different, different instruments and different tools for different groups who feel different impacts. So that is uh, the key takeaway is that there's this urgent need to move from reactive solutions of looking at when people already need to migrate uh, because of climate change impacts to having a proactive approach, identifying the risks, the natural hazards that are coming. Because if we do act early, uh, climate hazards do not become disasters. These are part of our preparations as governments, as organizations, as communities, building resilience. So being able to adjust that approach uh, to, to a proactive one. So that is all from me, thank you. Thank you so much, Yuri. Um, and as part of this move from reactive to proactive, um, we want to talk a little bit about what national governments are doing. So I'm going to turn to um, Bob Natifu, who is the Assistant Commissioner for Climate Change in the Ministry of Water and Environment in Uganda, um, responsible for you know, the government's policies on climate action. And you've, you know, yourself, you've also researched issues like climate governance and climate risk. Um, the government of Uganda has been at the forefront of supporting regional and international action on these issues, including spearheading the Kampala Ministerial Declaration on Migration, Environment and Climate Change. So, uh, Bob, can, I, can you share why these issues are a priority uh, in Uganda and what do you hope this declaration will achieve? Okay, so uh, thanks very much, Lawrence, uh, and thanks very much. Uh, Lucy and Yuri for uh, explicitly pointing out uh, particular policy areas that we need to focus at. Uh, but to the organizers, the MPI, I think this is really, or these webinars are critically important mm -hmm. because they allow uh, all of us to engage um, with distinguished panelists, um, such as the one that you have on here. Um, so, most of the things actually have been said in terms of challenges and uh, where we want to see ourselves going. But I think the, 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 to start my point, I want to frame my discussion bound around um, and building a point to what Lucy was saying about the environmental and what Yuri was saying about the environmental challenges that we have faced with. So arguably the environmental dynamics um, have long played a, a factor of shaping migration for quite a while. In the context of the changing environment, people moving from within the different forms of movement or migration, so to speak, within our own countries and beyond borders. I think that's a very key important point to start with as a point of reference. And this mobility, whichever way you look at it, whether within our own countries or within our own districts or within our own localities and beyond the borders which we occupy, I always argue spans around a continuum from displacement to more natural forms of uh, migration. So what does that tell us? So in our regions, it's either floods, landslides, as well as slow onset events and processes that we've already uh, heard from the different speakers, such as severe droughts to increased water levels, environmental degradation, and changing rainfall variability. All these things actually play out in our faces that actually lead to uh, the kind of human mobility that we are seeing between the different borders, but also between our own different countries. So this complex dynamics playing out makes solving the livelihood, um, issues of livelihood security within our areas very, very complicated in the context of sustainable development. 
So just to give an example, if you look at, uh, actually it's you, uh, um, Lawrence was talking about the number of people that have been moving uh, in 2023. And if I can take you back a little bit, actually the reports that I've had or I've seen, uh, if you look at the 2021 report, uh, it actually shows that about 2.6 million new disaster displacements have occurred over the sub-Saharan region in 2021 alone. And like you rightly say, in 2022, it's about 3 million. And from my conservative estimate, if you look at 2023, it will even be a mark higher up from what you've, uh, re re from the 3 million that you referenced. So now all these actions playing about actually point to the kind of action or response that governments need to uh, take in order to address uh, not just displacements, but I think the, the, the causes of what is causing these dis displacements to, to happen. Um, that alone, um, you may know for sure that Uganda is host to about 1.6 million refugees, which is also a, a very uh, significant number of uh, people. But I'm consciously optimistic that addressing this nexus of migration disasters and climate change is actually going to help us and it's filled with good intentions for resilience building. Because if you look at every policy document that we, we come up with, talks about not only low carbon development path, but with a greater emphasis on resilience. And hence the Kampala Declaration that we've come up with, which actually uh, acknowledges the impacts of climate change that we are faced with, the floods, landslides, and the droughts that we're faced with but which serves as a guide for all the, not only ESE and EGAD member countries, but now we've gone up to the continental level to see that all countries within the continent of Africa actually respond to addressing not only these climate and climate change impacts as we know we faced with, but also by extension to try and address issues of um, human mobility. So that's the key reason and key point where we've come up with this Kampala Ministerial Declaration on Environment, uh, on Migration, Environment and Climate Change, not only at regional level, but going as far as uh, continental level and forward looking to going to the extent of having it at global level. So the question then becomes, what does this declaration focus on? Having enlisted the the, the challenges in part and why we're coming up with this declaration. The declaration places an urgent call on so many issues. I'll just maintain myself about four issues. The first issue, it talks about the progressive desertification and land degradation that creates forced mobility of people and livestock. And like you've had the two previous speakers talk about how people migrate from, for example, uh, all the way from Western Sahara to Djibouti to down in South Africa, people tend to move because of the uh, uh, challenges that are environmental challenges that we're faced with. The second point is the unsustainable use of ecosystems and the impact of the frequent and intense extreme weather events, and by extension, which disrupts our well being. Because being a heavily um, uh, uh, agriculture-based economy. If it doesn't rain uh, in my village, the first point of option that my mother will look out for will be the forests or the wetlands. And if those are not uh, well addressed, then it has a corresponding implication on what we've set as, as, as our climate action goals in the NDCs. The third point that the Kampala Declaration, the expanded declaration looks at is how then do we address issues of unplanned migration of our people from the rural areas to the urban centers as a result of climate change and disasters. And like we've already said, if you look at the reports, the numbers are currently increasing from the 2.6 as we knew it in 2022 to 3 million currently, and which we see going further uh, to, to a higher mark in years to come. And lastly, and by no means uh, the very least, it's the limitations in terms of partnerships and financing. 
So recognizing that in order to ensure that we, we have resilient societies, there is need to have build stronger partnerships, not only between governments to governments, but governments and academia, governments to research institutions and governments with UN agencies and create this space that will actually allow governments to mobilize the required kind of financing to respond to the climate risks and uh, in order to address the climate impacts that we are faced with. So that's in, in a nutshell, some kind of broader way of thinking in terms of why we have this Kampala ministerial declaration. But my key takeaway, uh, I want to build my key takeaway bound around three fundamental points. That in order to have this actually make sense beyond what we've done already, three key points that we need to look at. First, they need to have facts and data in place we can rely on to assess the situation further and ensure that this nexus beyond between migration, disasters and climate change or environment comes out more clear and becomes more ev evident for everybody else that um, uh, should talk about. The second point is bound around the policies that we frame, not only at national level, but policies that we form from national, regional to international level. In the, in the climate change processes, for example, we undertake what we call the national adaptation planning processes as a kind of framework that, is, that helps countries to build resilience. So how then do we factor in issues to do with human mobility within this adaptation, country-specific adaptation planning processes? And by extension, ensuring that this planning within this in in-country planning actually occupies its own space within the UNFCCC policy processes where we are talking about in the global stock take as an example to show the evidence that there is uh, and by extension, how this affects meeting our individual livelihoods and well-being of our people. The third point and final point for me in terms of framing this discussion is now that we have the Kampala Ministerial Declaration at continental level, how then can we build further and better beyond what we've done? Being forward looking in terms of ensuring that everybody else comes on board between the continent of Africa, but also ensuring that we have partners and uh, like-minded colleagues that are going to support and voice the necessary uh, support that we so require to raise the visibility of migration, environment, and climate change, but also address climate impacts at the same time. Thanks very much. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much, Bob. Uh, moving straight to Dr. Ahmed Abdehun, who is Regional Program Manager at ICPAC. Um, so at the operational level, we've heard about it today already, we need data to inform policies and help anticipate and respond to disasters and displacement. Um, so can I ask what ICPAC's role is in filling this data need and what specific types of data do you think we need to be able to turn these ideas uh, into action? Uh, thank you very much, uh, Lawrence, and thank you also for having me. And uh, it is a pleasure to contribute also to this discussion. Uh, I'll just pick it from where uh, Bob has left it in terms of uh, identifying, for example, data and facts and evidence as a key to understanding, but also addressing uh, the adverse uh, impacts of you know, climate change in the form of uh, human mobility, displacement, migration, and also uh, planned relocation. Uh, we just came out of uh, a regional you know, consecutive uh, drought uh, seasons, five consecutive drought seasons, which is now a new normal, we, we are afraid, uh, that in fact displaced uh, over 2 million people in the region. Now, the real question is this, when we talk of data, uh, where are these people originating from, uh, where they're headed to, where are they now, and so on. I think that's very, very critical. So I'll be addressing the data questions that you raised, uh, Lawrence, within this uh, framework, particularly this Horn of Africa, some describe it as epitome of crisis. Um, usually we, you know, disasters usually compound, but with, with cascading uh, impacts. Uh, which often leads to um, loss of livelihoods, which immediately leads to displacement. Um, as we conclude the, the drought season now in October, November and December, we are bracing for El Nino condition, which again is um, going to take us to the flooding side. So basically the region is reeling from the drought to floods, desert locusts, 
you know, conflicts and so on. So that is, I think, the setting that we're discussing um, this nexus um, uh, in the framework, of, the framework of Horn of Africa. Uh, we just concluded also uh, recently a regional uh, risk profile, displacement risk profile, which is actually an eye-opener in terms of estimating displacement in current and future climate. Uh, so the, the, the estimates that we're getting is that nearly 1.2 million people will be displaced every year on average due to floods. We are going to do for the same for droughts and we'll see the figure. So the figure is already staggering for floods, uh, which definitely is beyond uh, the capacity of the countries and the region, in fact. That's where we see uh, migration now, crossing borders, crossing international borders and moving um, in those um, known uh, pathways, let's say the Eastern route, Northern route and Southern route. So basically this is uh, the framing. Uh, to just address specifically on uh, uh, what ICPAC particularly is um, capable of doing, uh, just maybe for the audience, ICPAC is the Regional Climate Center of IGAD, um, providing services for 11 Greater Horn of African countries from Northern Sudan to Southern uh, Tanzania. Uh, the main actually um, contribution of the center is uh, providing climate forecast, but also monitoring major hazards in the region. So when you talk of displacement, especially disaster displacements, uh, we understand that it is in the context of climate variability and climate change, if not due to conflicts. So this is now uh, where the data element is coming from monitoring already. There are data that can be um, you know, collected, but also uh, one you know, humble effort that we have put together with partners under the project uh, that you mentioned, Lawrence, uh, uh, you know, addressing adverse drivers in the context of uh, uh, adverse, uh, addressing adverse drivers of uh, human mobility in the context of disasters and climate change. ICPAC and IGAD uh, played actually a very important role with partners like IOM, ILO, PDD, um, UNHCR and others to understand displacement in the context of slow onset and sudden onset disasters. Our focus in this project was on the sudden onset, particularly looking at floods, uh, looking at cyclones, what is, you know, what is what's going on in terms of how these drivers um, are really displacing um, communities? When is that decision to move um, is taken at individual and household level? All those uh, efforts have been put in place to understand the dynamics of displacement, particularly in the context of uh, climate extremes such as uh, floods and 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 uh, uh, cyclones. Uh, the real question is now, in addition to you know, modeling, what we are trying to do is, can we also try to forecast risk of displacement, which is quite important, because at the end of the day, we, nobody wants to deal with a crisis, we better anticipate and prepare for uh, displacement, migration, because it's much cheaper, much dignified, and also more sustainable. So that is, I think, where the data modeling aspect is coming, and ICPAC is uh, handling that activity with, with uh, particularly PDD and as well as uh, the Chima Foundation. Uh, now, the, the critical element is now uh, at IGER and ICPAC particularly, we have, uh, we have started integrating the, the data already in our system, what we call East African Hazard Watch, uh, to try to understand the patterns, okay, where are the hotspots of displacement, uh, what really transpired over the last uh, many years, so that we set um, uh, threshold values and understand the triggers of displacement in this region. I think this is a humble effort from ICPAC and uh, this is the way we are contributing, uh, particularly in understanding um, uh, the, the, the displacements, uh, migration also, and also plant relocation uh, in the context of climate change. Uh, I would say we play a humble, uh, a humble role in that, in that respect because work is already ongoing. We have quite a number of plans uh, around that. Uh, coming to the second uh, bit of your, your question, particularly what, um, type of data is needed now, particularly to turn these policies into action. This is, I think, very, very important, particularly summarizing what uh, the distinguished uh, speakers have uh, pointed out. Uh, critically enough, I think when you talk of data, I would say we need every, 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 top, every type of data because we are dealing with a complex uh, natural and human system in the region. That is how uh, I understand uh, displacement, migration, and, and relocations. Uh, if you look at, for example, the biophysical and socioeconomic data, it all starts, I think, from that uh, place of origin. What is or what are the adverse drivers of displacement? 
that is the most important place to start. And in, our, in, in my humble understanding, uh, understanding data, more disaggregated data in terms of uh, place of origin, transit, and also destination provides an important policy insights, but also helps a targeted actions towards addressing uh, the, the issue. Uh, uh, so the, the importance is basically uh, understanding place of origin, what we can do in the place of origin really matters. The rest is, I think, managing you know, the process or managing the, the, the crisis in some cases. So I think uh, in terms of data now, aggregation is one, one form of disaggregation is uh, in terms of understanding data in place of origin, transit and, and, and uh, uh, destination. Uh, but also the other disaggregation is actually understanding who is in the move. Particularly, is it that they lose the whole of livelihoods, their livelihood assets, so that they are moving? Or is it sections of the communities, which often is the case in some areas, that is really moving? This also helps to understand and also um, design uh, our, or formulate our policies in such a way that addresses uh, the root causes of, of displacement and the root cause of migration. Uh, I think it's African discourse, it's African perspective that migration is a source of adaptation, uh, a form of adaptation, which is correct. Okay, but it is more so if we are able to understand okay the the, the adverse drivers and able to address them, uh, which also has an element of uh, big questions uh, globally. Actually, big questions like the climate crisis big questions like uh, restructuring the financial, the financial systems and so on. This is embedded in that understanding, in that data of uh, displacement in place of origin, transit, and, and, and also destination. Because climate change, the real face of climate change is creating climate extremes, which according to climate, climate change projections are yet to be you now more severe, more frequent in the Horn of Africa. So in view of that, we are expecting actually more displacements in view of this um, uh, uh, crisis uh, globally. So it has an element of burden sharing, understanding and addressing more at, at the roots, more at the origin than usually at the border posts and so on. I think that's very, very important. So our data need to reveal such a reality, such facts on the ground, which are um, quite important if we have to address and, uh, the, the matter sustainably. Uh, one uh, or two important points which I would like to add with respect to data is uh, for the region, the humble efforts at the, at, at the regional and national level is there, but critically uh, is also it's important to support the member states in collecting data systematically, aggregating them and making them available for use, for decision. I think that is um, areas that we can work uh, and improve, particularly supporting national and local governments to have a systematic data collection and aggregation system, but also visualization analysis and so on. Uh, going forward, I think in the coming years, uh, IGAT uh, and also ICPAC would be uh, supporting um, such efforts with partners in the region so that we formulate policies based on evidence, based on patterns, trends, and facts. I think that is uh, the central element. And finally, uh, I would like to also uh, indicate that the capacity in the region Although uh, the region is hosting actually one of the largest uh, communities displaced due to different factors, uh, there must be a way to build and support national governments also to build capacities, their capacities, uh, first of all, to anticipate such you know, large scale displacements, which we believe is possible. From, from our engagement so far. Uh, the capacity also to uh, be able to deal with uh, such, such influxes okay, at the regional level, uh, but also to provide a decent uh, stay uh, for, for the displaced communities, and also if possible, helping and supporting uh, recovery and also uh, 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 you know, uh, voluntary return to, to their place of uh, origin. The key is now addressing the adverse uh, drivers is quite central and data around that would be uh, a groundbreaking in terms of uh, 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 broadening our understanding, broadening the evidence base uh, for policy uh, uh, formulation, but also implementation of the policy actions like the Kampala Declaration, which is brilliantly coined, but the implementation requires such a robust understanding, such a robust data uh, in place of origin, most importantly, uh, of course, transit and, and, and um, destination. Uh, let me stop there and thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Ahmed. And thank you to all of our speakers. Um, I already see some questions coming through in the chat and uh, 
So if you have questions, please type them into the Q&A box or the chat box or email events at migrationpolicy.org or tweet them at us at migrationpolicy hashtag MPI discuss. Um, we're going to dive right into questions and I think we're going to run maybe three or four minutes over so we can get to um, the many questions that are coming in. There's one set of questions I'm going to bundle together around sort of bottom-up approaches and how to integrate local voices and indigenous cultures um, into community initiatives. And let me first, let me direct this to, to Yuri. Um, so the question is how can climate change and uh, population increase be embedded within community initiatives to have this bottom-up approach in a sustainable in a sustainable way? And how can we ensure the voices of impacted communities are meaningfully engaged as part of this process? Thank you very much. So I think that this, um, the, the key is to be able to aggregate voices. Uh, we have different communities. Uh, some of the concerns and the challenges they are facing are similar. Some of them are uh, widely different, even within one country. Uh, for example, I know that Bob has been working on the vulnerability assessments uh, within Uganda. So different regions will have very different impacts they are facing and that takes very different solutions so that what what is the important part is to be able to bring these communities together collaborate with cso's collaborate with different actors that are on the ground and then to be able to then aggregate it bring it to the language of policy it might be very different uh, ways of talking about very similar issues to be able to switch the language to the policy language and then to be able to bring it to the policy makers. And this way, I do think that we can integrate the local solutions uh, through aggregation and by collaborative action between CSOs, UN organizations and governments and bring this data to the government table. So that would be on there, uh, bringing the local voices from bottom up. Yes, I, I, I don't know, Lawrence, if I can make a rejoinder to what um, Yuri has just said, if briefly, in just half yes. a minute. Yeah, uh, very briefly. Um, I think the there's very strong validity in um, what Yuri says, uh, but I think we can also add that to the point that Dr. Ahmed made about uh, forecasting risk of displacement. Uh, I think one of the things that we need to take due consideration, and again, this aligns so well with the data needs and data collection. Oftentimes, we, um, the affected communities only tend to be on the receiving end. Where um, a disaster happens, they will be forced to move at a certain point X or Y without necessarily taking due consideration of maybe or, or engagements in terms of uh, what are the risks involved in terms of displacing or in terms of moving this community from point X to point Y. Uh, and we also know for sure that there are very strong attachments to uh, or how people relate to their places where they're staying. And when an impact like that happens, uh, it's quite inevitable that I think the very easiest response would be, um, how do you move from point A to point X. So the whole point I'm trying to put forward is I think we need to take due consideration or uh, engaging heavily the communities even before disasters happen in terms of how flexible um, uh, the movements are likely to have to, to the implication of the movements that are likely to happen once a disaster strikes. Thank you very much. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Yuri. I think that's uh, really important in terms of both sort of the local, but also aggregating them and, and bringing in all elements of um, all, all the communities. Um, there is a separate question uh, that I think will be for Lucy. Um, so the question is, how does EGAD's protocol and its efforts here relate to continental initiatives, such as the African Continental Free Trade Agreement? Over to you, Lucy. Hi, sorry. I was trying to read the whole, uh, the whole question. I hadn't read it. Um, I believe that um, a free movement regime uh, of persons and trade is like um, a coin with two faces. The movement of goods, as you see in, uh, envisioned in the African Continental Free Trade uh, Agreement, calls for the free movement of persons as well. And this is where we really have to work hard 
to get a very clear understanding. I was part of the experts who were in the formulation process for the AU protocol on free movement of persons from 2018. We did that over a period of time. And then in Chigali uh, 2018, um, I believe it was adopted in January at the Heads of State and Government Summit. And then the CFTA came much later on. But what is surprising is that to date, only about four countries have ratified the AU protocol on free movement of persons. And yet almost all the African uh, AU member states have signed on to the CFTA. We forget that goods cannot move in a restricted regime. Persons are the facilitators of movement of goods. And infrastructure development, the issue of tariffs, developing uh, the key bodies, uh, customs authorities, revenue authorities, this all, and immigration authorities as well. These are all parts of the whole, you know, one person. So it's very important to address the achievement of the aspirations of the CFTA in the context of the free movement of persons as well and vice versa. The free movement of persons is required for trade in the continent. But so far we have very stringent visa regimes as you know, and I can refer you to the, the UN ECA or ECA uh, website to see the, the visa index. You can see how restrictive the visa regimes are in Africa. And then the other thing, of course, is um, how do these address movements from and to the IGAD region to and from other regions in the continent? Currently, in IGAD region, we enjoy two types of free movement uh, regimes. We have IGAD member states who are part of the East African uh, community who have enjoyed the Common Market Protocol 2010 and the regulations on free movement of persons, which has actually been a very successful model of trade and free movement of persons. And the continent could actually learn from that. And then the second uh, category of countries enjoying free movement regimes are those with bilateral arrangements. Kenya with Ethiopia, Ethiopia uh, probably with Djibouti, uh, allowing Djiboutians to go to Ethiopia without visa, so the bilaterals have been functional for, for a long time. The EAC has been functional for a long time, but on the other hand, we still have restrictions of visa even within EGAD region. So trade is robust in the context of the EAC, but in the context of EGAD overall, it's not very um, easy to execute trade uh, relations because of restrictions uh, by law on investment or the right to uh, the right to establishment, which is one of the aspirations, the, uh, the, the, the rights in a free movement regime, the right of establishment, investments. Some of our member states even have restrictive policies and laws that restrict uh, foreign citizens from investing in their countries, while others have relaxed regimes. So these are the obstacles, uh, these are the opportunities that we have to work on and exploit towards a coherent, uh, move in the continent that we have a free movement regime that interacts uh, or that encompasses trade and persons as well in the free movement regime. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lucy. Uh, I think that's an important point. I, I want to do one last quick question, and sorry, Dr. Ahmed, for asking you to do this quickly, but there's a, there's a set of questions around data and the hazards, and uh, there's a specific question noting that it's not just one driver, it's not just one disaster um, that forces people to move, it's droughts in a flood or it's droughts in a conflict. So how do you manage when multiple hazards overlap and is there a role for sort of multi-hazard early vulnerability assessments or other sort of early warning mechanisms to, to that get at this more complicated set of drivers? Big question, so over to you, okay. Dr. Hathen. Yes, okay, uh, very quickly, thank you very much, uh, Lawrence. Thank you uh, for the question. I think um, as IGED, we have uh, a framework, particularly for multi-hazard early warning system. We try to address and monitor major hazards and also provide advisories to member countries, particularly the focal institutions. Uh, that's the way we, we, we do with the countries. But there's also a, a question on 
qualitative data, which uh, we have done through a modeling exercise, particularly the ABM, agent-based modeling, which tries to understand human behavior, human decision, when are they deciding to move, uh, and so on. So with that respect, I think it was the communities that were engaged because this question was also raised. And the solution was also sought from the communities, how uh, they're, they're, they're addressing, they're anticipating, first of all, uh, managing and also deciding uh, uh, whenever floods um, come. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you to everybody for joining us today. And my apologies for the unanswered questions. We got through as many as we could in the time we had. Um, an audio and video recording will be available on the event website. Um, reporters on the call can talk, contact Michelle Middlestadt at mmiddlestadt at migrationpolicy.org. Um, we encourage you to check out the evaluation report at the link Lisa shared, um, which is uh, also available at the top of this screen. Um, and thank you to all four of our incredible speakers today, to my MPI colleagues, Camila Koz, Viola Pulkinen, Lisa Dixon, um, and to Axiom, our partners, um, and have a lovely rest of your day, everybody. Thank you for joining us. <laughs>